Broadcasting live from the Babadook's basement, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Taya, and I'm joined by my Fruit Loops. Mila, Louisa, and Zeba. And this is season two. If you're new here, go catch up and listen to season one on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. To celebrate Pride Month, we'll be discussing queerness and horror. We will begin with the 1983 erotic horror cult film The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott. We'll then tackle the 2017 supernatural Norwegian horror drama Thelma, directed by Joachim Trier. Finally, we'll cover the 2020 British psychological horror Saint Maud, directed by Rose Glass. Enjoy! So, welcome back to season two. We asked you on Instagram some of your childhood gay awakenings through film and TV cartoons. And so I'm going to read some of the answers out. There was some patterns, (laughs) some repeat offenders. We got a type collectively. Okay, so Shigo, we got, I think like four or five times. (laughs) <laughs> strong and people were in the comments were questioning if shigo is queer coded at all i don't think it matters if she's turning people left and right she, yeah she i feel like it's like a projected queer coded kind of situation like have you seen those tiktok like trends where it's like name something that's straight but it's actually gay and then name yeah. something that's gay yeah. but it's actually straight yeah exactly we had <laughs> someone <laughs> Who said summer high can dawn till dusk? And first, I didn't realize what you were talking about, and I googled it immediately. I was like, yes, I think everyone shares that like mental image of their head of her in that bikini. I don't, I haven't seen the film. I have no idea what it's about. I've never seen the film, but that image <laughs> is iconic. Agree, um, Louisa. Black Swan sex scene came up twice. When did that come out? Two thousand ten. Uh, twenty ten. Yeah. That was prime Louisa's discovering she is queer as fuck type. I also thought, I think it came out a few years ago, but you're right, like it's now over a decade ago. Because I saw it and just had so many feelings. So many feelings. <laughs> I, like, I saw that in the cinema as well. I, I actually don't remember how I felt about in it. In cinema? Oh my yeah. God, I didn't watch it in cinema. I watched it in the privacy of my own room and thank fucking God I, I know, did. I watched it with all my friends who, you know, weekend out from Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> I indeed did the same thing, Mila. But that was that came up twice. Oh we had, and actually, there was another Mila Kunis lesbian sex scene, um, and it's in the movie called After Sex, and she has a sex scene and like a relationship with Zoe Zaldana, which I've seen. You know what? Okay, that, that is, I understand. That is also creme de la creme, like ten out of ten. Minus the fact that Zoe Zaldana is problematic, but I was going to say she's hot, and so that doesn't matter. But, you know. Stunning. <laughs> Didn't we already decide that hot people get a pronounced <laughs> problematic? Oh dear. Um, we also had, thank you, Taya, the cruel intentions kiss. Yes, absolutely. 90s highlight of the decade. Did anybody say Max Goof from the Goofy movie? Okay, I'm going to say that one. <laughs> Final answer. I feel, I feel attacked. <laughs> That's Taya's man. You need to back up. <laughs> We also have, um, you know, is it called Lost, Lost City of Atlantis or just Atlantis? The cartoon. We have, I didn't know this was her name, Helga Sinclair, the blonde. Yeah. Who the hell is that? She's that the is. one. 
If you don't know, then you don't know. In the city of Atlantis? Yes. I thought her name was Keita, like the one with the yeah, white hair. Yeah, had to, of course. We, no one said it in this particular survey, but yeah, yeah. She was the superior option. I agree. Well, you can fight <laughs> this person about it. Okay, cool. I think three times Velma in the orange spandex from Scooby-Doo. Oh, the okay, movie. yeah. I would like to add the whole cast of Road to El Dorado. Oh, my God, yeah. What was her name in um, Hercules? I think Meg. Oh, Meg. Yeah. Oh, my God. How did I forget about Meg? Oh, I didn't fucking say Jasmine. Jasmine from Aladdin when Ooh, she gets stuck in that. One. I know it's bad, and I know, okay, no one no one analyzed this, but when she's <laughs> trapped in the hourglass, and yeah, I'm sorry. All right. I kinda, I'm all chained up. I might have just revealed a kink there. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had two Bella Swans. Wow. Bella Swan? It was yeah, that one Louisa? of them was Louisa, correct. Um, <laughs> and then we've got Danny Phantom a few times. I knew someone was going to say Danny Phantom. Danny Phantom's trans. That's, that's factual canon. Oh. No, it's not. Don't, but. I know, but I, but I see it. I love an out there interpretation that actually works and I'm going to go with that. <laughs> also within this Danny Phantom suggestion is Chris Evans is the Human Torch. And Chris Evans? That one tiger is from Is that who Zootopia. I think it is? Chris Evans is in like a Captain America? I <laughs> threw the Zootopia thing in like so <laughs> You You swept the Zootopia thing under the rug. I'm gonna need you to back up. <laughs> Wait. The like the really wimpy tiger man who was about to No, not, right? not that. He's, he's an extra. He has like minimal screen time. Yeah, Are you yeah. serious? What is that even a main character? Just type in this? that one type of Zootopia. Oh, wait, I get it. <laughs> Look at this <laughs> fan art. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. No, not okay, yeah. You guys are fucking weird. No, absolutely. I, I mean, at first, it. I thought you meant the lion mayor. No, listen, that tiger is a provider. Like, he's going to provide for this family. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> Sam from Danny Phantom. I don't know about Danny Phantom. Who is Sam? She's That's his, friend, like, goth, goth girlfriend. Girl. Okay, that makes sense. They're just friends. I made them a couple in my head. Elizabeth Swan from Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, Eris mm-hmm. from Sinbad, the, like, uh, goddess in it, who's voiced by mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer. I think it's Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm going to pretend it is. I did see the cartoon. I didn't like it. It gave it's me not a very headache. Good. I feel very similar about the that little... That spirit cartoon? No, fuck off. With the horse? Fuck off, that is a masterpiece. <laughs> I will not take any slander. It gave me the worst headache. And I no, 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 no. Me, Laz, a horse it. girl. <laughs> Are we supposed to talk about why horror is gay and our thoughts on pride? Yeah. We're supposed to talk about the fact that horror is like exclusively gay through it's and through. Gay. I, I struggle to think of a horror movie that isn't gay. In the same way, you you can make you can interpret anything as queer if you really want to, want it to be. Like I stand by that. But y'all wouldn't let us do the Baba Duke this episode. It's fine. Like I feel like all there is to say about that is like that's truly anything could be gay. Like I have watched that movie looking for it. I've been like, is the kid gay? Is the Baba Duke gay? Is the mom gay? And the answer is yes, if you look hard <laughs> enough. Yes, and I think that's true of like most queer media is just like people deciding it was gay because you're not gonna let it be. Like the way we sat here and talked about Memento Mori as if like <laughs> those those were heterosexuals <laughs> and they want us to believe it. We don't know. We know the truth. It's all undercover. 
I think something else that makes horror very queer is I just saw the movie Lupe yesterday. Very cute, by the way. Um, but like in the movies, there's sea monsters or whatever. But I think it's like the being the secret or like the object experience of where like society is scared of something or they fear it because they don't understand it. It's like a very queer related emotion and experience especially because I think like in horror a lot of the times like the main character is very ostracized like in the craft like they were the people who didn't fit in um like in the Babadook the son is like very different um and she like screams why can't you just be normal at him I think those are like things that to me pride kind of sucks but I do celebrate mm. it <laughs> I feel like that's with most like cultural events or holidays you're like it sucks but I'm gonna do it yeah like that's that's how I feel about it as in obviously like the the sentiment I like mm. I love you know the history I just don't like the pink washing it's just like too much I don't like how everything goes rainbow I don't like how everything's slotted in one month on Twitter I saw like skittles that had <laughs> Because obviously they're normally rainbow. They're already rainbow. Yeah. They'd stripped the colors so they were white. And the oh. su- the supermarket like um, label was <laughs> white pride Skittles. White pride no. Skittles? Was this a real no, thing? Skittles make me want to throw up. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're racist. There's a lot of uh, skincare brands that release like pride exclusive bottles. And that to me makes even less sense because... It's just the only thing on it that's a rainbow is the writing. And I'm like, I don't think anyone wants a product with just rainbow writing on it. Yeah. And like, they don't donate anything to causes or anything. I feel like Pride is like Pride, at least in New York, like Pride the event, Pride the parade is for straight people. <laughs> I mean, I think it started to be when people started dressing up in rainbow stuff, taking those pictures and say love is love. And it was like every celebrity did that for like two years straight. And I was like, please. <laughs> I mean, the only distinction that I can make, and like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to get into discourse, and y'all stop me before I get okay. there. I, I for one, am proud, right? That's cool. <laughs> but like, people are afraid to say what is queer because you don't want to make it something like not normal. So this whole like, like pride isn't about sex. Pride is about X, or pride isn't about you know horror and camp it's about blank and the blank is usually something pretty straight and annoying like love this yeah it's something universal like love or parades or barbecues or families and like of course all of that is part of pride but like to deny that like pride is about sex in any capacity is wrong and the same way like to deny that there is like pride wrapped up in horror is wrong because a lot of the times it's like in a little bit of an offensive way (laughs) like or we have to like make a reach about it but to like strip the things that you think are like unsavory or not respectable from pride is where my issue comes in like the corporatization there's nothing you can stop but like trying I think trying to make gay normal is wrong (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because it's not normal and it's not normal because of the circumstances yeah right like the way that pride came about was mm. not normal it shouldn't have had to have come about that way but we're here now and like denying that history is the pink washing i agree with everything you just said the idea that 
there needs to be this like forced assimilation into society like doesn't it's not done in the and society is capitalism yeah we could really go into that we could go into that the people who scream like love is love and like allyship also really want you to make spaces comfortable for them that is the direct opposite of allyship even with like other activism events i'm just gonna say they'll be like the cure for everything is love love trumps hate and i'm like the main people who say this i'm not i just do not typically see them giving people unconditional love it's very conditional to be like you need to still be in these confines of what is acceptable or elsewhere where like you're the outlier and i can only be an ally to like this specific version of experience I feel like it's okay for people not to understand. There's like this need to categorize everything and like study it to death and like have an aw- have an awareness. Uh, that's like an activist buzzword now. Awareness. And I'm just kind of like, okay, like cool. Like yeah, we sh- don't be like ignorant, but also like it's okay to not understand everything about it. Like you don't have to like understand the ins and outs of everything to be cool with. I have very strong feelings about what you just said, Louisa, because the death of expertise is something that deeply bothers me. Because people have now the impression that you can be an expert on something in 10 minutes because you read an infographic on it on Instagram and you could never learn people's lived experience from a fucking infographic. I hate to tell people that. I appreciate that people are trying to educate themselves on issues that this is people's real life. And like you cannot sit on the internet and make bold claims for something that will never affect you. It's absolutely ridiculous to me. Also, expecting queer people to be the experts is also wrong. Like, I could not definitely tell you my own gender and sexuality. So, like, <laughs> let, I, I feel like have, asking anybody to have it figured out is a little bit bullshit. So, like, educate yourself, but also, like, like the people that straight people lean on to tell them about what is cool in the gay <laughs> community is, like, RuPaul and, like, mm-hmm. a goddamn, like... Sometimes lean away. Like, y'all need to stop. You need to, like, back up and figure it out. Yeah, I think, you know what? It's something, it's a little bit of a side eye at the queer community as well, because I think, like, so many people within it are, like, really shackled to the idea of representation being the be all and end all. And it's like, I think you also, like, as a community, need to take a hard look at ourselves and be like it's not the rep- the be all and end all we've talked about the problems with representation when the people behind it or the sole people who are representing the community are problematic so it's just kind of like unshackle that and also i agree with what you're saying taya i think people just need to start with your own lane like what are the problems in your own life another way that like media misunderstands or misuses representation is that it's used in a way to like feed to generally like a white straight audience to make them understand that's like the content that's being produced is to like teach this underrepresented identity or community to this white family sitting at home for lgbt representation is almost always like they love a muslim family that does not accept queer child oh yeah they love uh, a poor black boy in the hood who is struggling with his homosexuality in an environment that doesn't accept him or somebody dying like <laughs> that is it. or it could be something so ridiculously straight i think such as love simon who was that said that was it you mila who said love simon is straight or was it you Zeva? i don't know it was one of you guys i think love victor is better than love simon yeah it love might victor be i haven't i haven't seen love victor but love simon i hated and i was like i think this is very it's giving gay people are just like you what makes me angry about these movies is that Say, for instance, there's two black kids in the school. The odds that those two black kids are going to fall in love with each other is low. 
So why on these movies, they're like, there's two queer kids in the school and they're in love. I'm like, that is just not realistic. You know what? It kind of get. is realistic sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I see where you're coming from, but I have to query that in my I have definitely, especially when I first came out and I was like really searching for somebody like, like someone, it was like the first queer person I saw. I was like, gonna be you. Like literally the first person who hit on me as I was out, I slept with. Sorry, mom. <laughs> I just had like a brain blast memory from like my childhood when I was watching Will and Grace, like when it was on as a kid. And I didn't, my parents have, you know, gay friends, trans friends. Like I grew up around gay people as a little kid, but I had, like, no one had ever, I didn't, still didn't know what it was. So I was watching Will and Grace, and that's when they said the word gay all the time, and no one had ever used that word. And I, like, asked my dad, I was like, what is that? And he explained, he explained it to me, but for years I was like, gay is a way that you act. It's not who you like sleep with because I didn't have no context yeah. for sex. So like that representation was so weird. I'm like, there are gay people on like grown up shows, right? I know that. And I and, like, they act in a very particular way in the early 2000s. It was all like very flamboyant. I didn't know Will was gay on Will and Grace because like, he didn't act the way that TV told me gay was. Mm. And, the, and like the, pe the people who were actually gay adults in my life, they didn't act like the people on TV. So I didn't know they were gay. And so like for years that like this like single lane media like didn't allow me to see real people in my life for the way that they were. I agree that labels can be really useful in any sort of journey to discover like who you are and what you align with. I feel like people feel like you can't change them and they can't be fluid and that's obviously like the wrong approach. But obviously media likes to categorize and like have very strict tropes. There's an obsession in like Western culture with needing to categorize so you can subjugate. Exactly. And also like coming at it from more, I guess, like a increasingly secular and like science orientated society. Like there's this need to also find some kind of psychological or biological basis. It's sort of pitted against like that religious extremism where it's like gay is bad and wrong. It's not what God intended. And you'll be like, but science has proved that being gay is normal. There's this need to like, yeah, you have to tangible. like evidence. What is that? Like you need empirical fucking evidence. When you're in like a very like terrorized environment as that, it's useful to have such like backing as like those like facts, like, oh, yeah. in, in nature, it's gay. But I think like that's in response. Like obviously that's like a defense. Mm -hmm. I think once you like are in a more accepting environment, then you just realize like, oh, these labels are actually just more <laughs> shackling. Like I some I just switch between so many. I have I was rich I was originally bi and I'm jury still out whether I was actually bi or if it just like changed or if I was just like gay. The jury's still out. Jury's still out. I don't even know. Because there there are times like I listen to other like lesbian identifying people and they're like, oh you know, I was like so disgusted, hated experiences with men. And I was like, I didn't hate it. It wasn't the best, yeah. but like it was, it was all right. <laughs> but like you have like a varying spectrum. So I was just like, I don't know. I could I would think I was bi and then it changed. I think it's like sex labels are only as useful as like at the time. You have eras, you know? Yeah, you have eras. You change. You change. You change. There's a reason yeah. though that that religion and science are in nearly every movie that we're talking about today like mm, those two aspects are like are like constantly in conflict with each other and they and they're always like one is used to like i don't know they're i don't think they're in opposition but i do understand that like people like feeling the need to defend themselves with not just not just science 
like science and scientific labels but also like spiritual like yeah spirit spiritual and also like needing to say like hey the way i identify is in a book so you can't then deny it but for like a lot of us like the gray area is so gray that like how are you gonna do it the only people the only people demanding labels are those who do not have to label themselves i have to say it makes me so deeply upset that religion has turned into such a bastion of hate because originally like what it was there for was to be escapism from how horrible the world really was um and like guidance and people turned into like this very weird morally superior puritanism shit that is currently going on today i think it's just like the need to categorize humans to death is like in like the system that we are currently operating it doesn't matter what dominant ideology will operate in even if you have a woke ideology it's still going to be needing to categorize people to death because that's just the system in which we live in and we just need to get past this idea like all of these things are social constructs and we could just simply be that's what's queer the gray area in between science and religion that's where we move away from needing to like categorize at some point i think people have to um talk think about like how cis men dominate queer media and in the mainstream like how billy porter's the only person who ever gets nominated for anything from pose and gets all the photo shoots and stuff despite the fact that pray tell is not necessarily the main character it's blanca and mj rodriguez should be getting all of the flowers for that show as well as the rest of the cast but it's just billy porter and how like queer eye as a show like all of them were iconized and like turned into these figures of like absolute wokeness and authority on queer stuff karamo don't know shit we can cut this out later but karamo if i see you in the street wait rupaul also is fracking we can talk about that okay rupaul has land that he has like is getting paid to let oil companies frack on this is what i mean it's not about representation it's about the voting systems no offense but men gonna be men and that's why we're only talking about lesbians today (laughs) you're canceled next (laughs) This is what we mean about visibility and representation isn't the end all because at some point you're selling out to the systems that are literally oppressing you. I don't mind like a month to like concentrate or celebrate or something like if you really want or like to give people more financial backing or opportunities. But I just think when it's like all of our friggin place in society hinges on that one month, one month of representation and how palatable and how sellable you are. That's where the problem is. The Monstrous Feminine is on Apple Podcasts, so go leave us a five-star review. And if you do, you might just get a shout-out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. And our Witch of the Week this week is Madeline Loves Dracula, great name, who says perfection and gives us five stars and says, I didn't realize how much I needed a podcast that talked about all these things until I discovered this one. If you've read Christopher's Powers of Horror or, of course, The Monstrous Feminine by Ms. Barbara Creed, Slash, you've witnessed how often women and their bodies are seen as scary, gross, or abject. This is such satisfying discourse. It's empowering, academic, thoughtful. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with this review. <laughs> that was really nice. Thank you so much. What do we wish for them, Coven? A great summer solstice. Yes. yes. May your crops be plentiful and your skin be clear. Oh, yes. 
the Jupiter retrograde is going to bring you abundance. That means, you know, money, love. Yeah, thank you. And if you do love our podcast, we are actually launching a Patreon. So if you love listening to the Monstrous Feminine podcast, but you want more, you can subscribe to our Patreon. And we have a little tier system as it stands now. Tier one is called Dies First. And for a small amount, you can get access to our Discord, where you can talk amongst yourselves, form a little community, and we'll dip in and out and say hi. And for tier two, called Final Girl, you can get access to our Discord again, but also an extended monthly episode. So if you want to see some of the stuff that we cut out, please go subscribe. (laughs) And yeah, we'd love if you would support us. In The Hunger, a vampire named John discovers that his time of prolonged youth is coming to an inevitable end, despite the fact that his lover, Miriam, an ancient vampire, promised him eternal youth. When John begins aging rapidly, he visits Sarah, a doctor that studies the process of aging, in the hopes that she can slow the process. Instead of finding a cure, Miriam decides to replace John with Sarah as her next lover. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve. The cruel elegance of David Bowie. The open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. Combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. I mean, I was there for Catherine Deneuve and only her. Uh, The Umbrellas of Chivorg is like one of my favorite films. (laughs) So I... Used to be so obsessed with her when I was younger. Also, a little bit now, but I think she might be a little bit right-wing, so not not as much these days. Oh, didn't she say questionable things about the Me Too movement? I'm sure we've also said questionable things about the Me Too movement. Yeah. But again, she is hot, and so it, she gets a pass. She's stunning. And so are we. That's why we get a pass. And her clothes in this movie were sensational. I feel like they really put all the effort into me, like, make her look hot. I'm pretty sure she's older than Susan Sarandon, but she looked younger than her in this movie. I thought her, I thought that Catherine, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was going a different route. I thought Catherine and Susan Sarandon looked exactly the same. It was a, a bit doppelbangy. It was a doppelbang. I love that. Can I ask a controversial question? Yes. Um, where do we all stand on David Bowie? I'm pretty anti. <laughs> oh, are we anti? I don't know uh, I have anything no real about strong him. feelings about him, to be honest. Oh, he he was allegedly caught up in that like a uh, group of group of rockers who like would keep underage groupies around. <gasps> Bowie movies have like a special place in my heart just because the presence of him means it's like a camp fantasy that we love i feel the same way about like labyrinth and all that but like there were moments where i'm like it's interesting that he's rapidly aging because he's around all these like young women like that is like the center of his like role in this and there's also um what is her name the very young one i was gonna ask you the same thing about the fact that we associate like vampires killing grounded in sex and desire and the fact that he kills this child I wondered if any of you was like immediately also, uncomfortable. Wasn't about she that. being groomed by the lady Miriam yeah. to like be her next lover? Yeah. Which, again, problems. <gasps> what was that the situation? I thought they were just teaching her violin, fam. I didn't know. Oh no. No, it makes sense because at the end Sarah has three people there, and I didn't know why the like 
other woman was there. So maybe Sarah did the same thing and started grooming somebody else to become, like, the third. That's wild. Did not realize that that was happening. I'm looking at it slightly differently. I did think it was gruesome that they killed a child. I feel like in horror movies, they don't tend to cross that boundary. And in this movie, they were like, we're doing it. Okay, no. There are a lot of horror films that have a dead kid, but I don't feel like you often see it. You just see, like, a scary ghost child, but you don't, like, see them die usually or they die by circumstances they're not like killed yeah murdered i must say like this movie and interview with a vampire both have like a child that is either murdered or turned into a vampire and they took very different approaches to it like an interview with a vampire it was no you didn't even remotely think that they turned her into a vampire because they wanted to groom her into their lover or anything like that it was very obvious like they wanted her to be like their child but in this one, like there was, there is a sense that she was getting violin lessons, and that there was an interest in her taking John's place because he was rapidly aging when she became of age. Oh my god! And so I'm like, that is a very different approach to the how oh, they. Oh, she set that. it off. She set off the aging process. I don't. I'm not sure about that, but okay. I do think she was ideally thought. Okay, he has X amount of time left. She should be legal then. That's who's oh going to take his place, God, especially because she was going to be quite young. So it would be like it would take her a while to start rapidly aging. I think that's why she was going younger because they started aging quicker than she had planned. Oh, oh my oh, oh, oh. god i did not know there's a pedo element to this film i have no and notes so i was that. like this is very strange we've talked about this i forget what film it was where we talked about or maybe it wasn't even with y'all i was talking recently <laughs> about how a lot of oh no we were we were talking about call me by your name maybe we cut it out of the episode but a lot of like queer early queer relationships are with somebody older because you need a mentor to like introduce you into the world. I have thoughts and, on like, this. And like whether or not that's right, whether or not that's probably, but it's very common. Like I think, and it's more common than than we talk about publicly in media because then we really have to unpack it and it goes back to that thing of wanting to seem respectable for straight people. Like this is something that we need to discuss and unpack because it's a very common experience. I was like talking about this with my queer friend and I was like, it is a trope at this point. Like Carol does this whole mother-daughter thing. Ammonite, again, a more recent one, did a whole mother-daughter sort of metaphor there. And I'm like, why, why? To be fair, my friend is into older women, is a lesbian who's into older women, and I was like, you're really not helping us here. <laughs> but, uh, but like, in general, I was like, this needs to stop being a trope, because I don't understand why people think that queer equals mommy issues, in the same way that, I guess, for, like, cis straight people, it's been, like, like older men has equal daddy issues, and I'm like, I don't think you can... Why does it have to be, like, why, why are we replicating that trope that we've seen, I guess, in more straight cis media? Like, why do we need it for us? I just, I don't understand. I don't think it's as common. I guess, like, no, there is, there are a lot of age gap relationships, I should say. It is kind of common. But, like, we need to talk about, like, how they're kind of not always the best, especially when they start underage. Yeah, I don't know if I'm even talking about people with age gaps. I'm talking about, like, the experience of your first queer relationship being with somebody of at least a couple years older like even if it's not even if you're both like minors i've seen it with like 14 and 17 year olds or like a 17 year old and a 25 year old because especially if you grow up somewhere where there isn't like a very open queer community you need somebody to like open those doors for you and introduce you to other people and it usually starts off as a mentorship 
or a friendship. And like, I think it's that that is actually very common. And usually it's only people's like first relationship. And then once they are grown themselves that they hopefully date age appropriately, but sometimes they turn around and do it to younger people. I, I, like I've said, I don't have a problem with age gap relationships because like, this is my disclaimer. I don't have a problem with age gap relationships so long as everybody is like, at least over the age of 25 is kind of what I've decided. I was like, after that, like, do what you want to do because you're a grown adult and hopefully have, like, independence and you're, there'll be, like, less of a power differential. But, like, I think I'm more talking about, like, when it starts very young, mostly underage. Do you guys feel like this movie did this in a way with, like, her having to show them into the vampire lifestyle? Yeah. And so they were, like, completely dependent upon her? In a way, like, it almost seems like that is the main the reason why lifestyle. she... Yeah, why she was targeting uh, the student Alice because the I think her past partners like turned on her earlier because they realized she like lied about what she was promising them with like you'll live forever. But it was like they were essentially just dying forever because they started aging rapidly because she got them in like their 30s. And so I think like she and the movie is going for the younger person because they're going to need her longer, which is even more predatory. And like, they're going to basically believe her lies for a longer period of time. She don't love them people. Can we talk about it? When when I found out that they were just in those coffins forever, I was like, she doesn't love anybody. This isn't love. No, <laughs> like, it's so I feel fucked like up. And she knows from the beginning what she's going to do. I have no. my opinion on this. She's lonely, she's desperate for love, and the hunger is for love and not for sex. And that is my Mila, I'm concerned about you. As <laughs> I do definitely usual. do think the hunger is like like the loneliness that she loneliness that she feels. But I also feel like the the film is like implying that people can do really bad things out of like long loneliness and like hunger for love because she's essentially lying to these people to entrap them forever in her No, but she they're basement. disposable to her. She disposes of them and she even starts planning for the next before the other one has started aging. She's a femme fatale for sure. She can't be alone though. Like she's incapable of being alone and it's not like she like buries their coffin somewhere in the edge of town. Like she keeps them there. Because, like, she just physically can't be alone. But I do agree. She didn't love any of these people. It's just she, they, she needs someone to have that place next to her, a warm body. It's about control. It's about control, for sure. But do you want to hear what Ms. Barbara Creed had to say about this? I've done some yes. uh, Creed research, or Cree search, as I have formally termed it in my head. <laughs> um, so... First of all, Creed has some thoughts about the female vampire in general. Just the fact that we've talked about it before. They're very abject figures, vampires in general, living dead, human animal. They cross gender boundaries because a female uh, vampire becomes like kind of predatory in that way. They're more masculized because they're the seducer rather than the seduced in typical media. Um, and there's a constant association with blood, which is also very abstract. And it's very interesting what you guys are saying about the pedophilia aspect I did not catch on but Barbara Creed also goes on a weird tangent about how she thinks that um sort of starting your period and the vampire myth when it's like uh connected to a cisgender female is like are quite related so apparently in a tech I'm quoting Creed here but in Idols of Perversity a fascinating analysis of the representation of women in European art points out that um there was a belief that women became a vampire to replace the blood that she lost during her period. I was like, interesting. Um, Creed also quotes another 
a theorist who thinks Barbara Walker who thinks that like drinking blood has links to the moon because the mood if you're talking about like the four humors blood is one of the humors in ancient times and like during the moon like it can control our bodily fluids so that will be the time where your blood's like most alive in your veins and it can bring back the blood of the dead like it's a time of rebirth like because even the dead's blood will like rise um, and then that's also why vampire crosses over with werewolf lore because there's like an association with the moon. So that was kind of like general things that she yeah. said. There's also an association with like hypersexuality because like you'll see like usually the female vampire victim is resistant and then after they're bitten, they become like quite lustful for blood. Um, then there's a lot of archaic mother tropes and I think this is where we're coming to cross here or what we're touching on with this when we're talking about like is it love is it possession and I guess with archaic mother it's necessarily both so Creed points out that Miriam Creed talks about the hunger uh specifically uh because it's from 1983 so Creed time um and Miriam is in, whereas in like Dracula, the archaic mother is hinted through imagery. In this film, she's present. She's there. She's the devouring, cannibalistic, incorporating mother, but she's also a possessive, smothering, suffocating mother who refuses to let go. And she is kind of like a vampire lover mother, as in she like makes them her child and utterly dependent on them. She also teaches them how to feed. And then she, like, also, is also seducing them at the same time. Uh, Creed thinks that her attic is a womb and her putting her lovers Ooh. up there is her symbolically um, returning them. Reincorporating them into the womb. Yes, but also, like, a twisted version of the womb because she's now dried up. She can no longer nourish them with blood. It's not enough. And in this lore uh or this film, Creed thinks that, like, blood and milk are mixed and they're synonymous. Like, so particularly in the sex scene with Sarah, like when the, she's like feeding her her blood and it goes back and forth and there's this exchange. Yeah, it's kind of like, you could like read it as kind of incestuous as well because she's like basically nurturing her with her own blood milk kind of thing. She thinks it wow, like... Wow, you're taking me on a journey. <laughs> yeah. So when they when they become lovers, she thinks she says a series of boundaries are crossed. There's a symbolic mixing of blood and milk. There's a collapse of boundaries between self and other and also a possible retreat into narcissism because they look alike. <laughs> and Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Also, side note, we really need to talk about queer people who only date people of the same gender who look like them. Like, honestly, what are you Doppelbanging. Yeah, doppelbanging. Yeah. But it's weird. <laughs> but aren't you scientifically supposed to be attracted to people who look like you? I think you're actually supposed to be attracted to people who look like you because biologically you are... Do you want to diversify your gene pool? Y'all, I'm serious. This is actually a thing. It is a thing, but it's weird. It's a thing in child psychology. Like, children are more likely to want to make friends with people who look like them or their family. But once you're once you're grown, you should yeah, want to diversify and strengthen your gene pool. So but like listen, gays aren't breeders, so do what you will, I suppose. <laughs> well, that's essentially what she concludes with. Basically, the lesbian vampire relationship as represented in the hunger emphasizes three areas orality, death and incest, which works to cement the mother-child relationship rather than bring about the separation which is necessary for the institution of sociality and the law, which basically means that the vampire, the cisgender mother lesbian vampire refuses the separation which is necessary for a father 
um, in sort of Freudian or Lacanian terms. So that's why <laughs> you can't keep getting away with this. I <laughs> can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> Freud, we're, we're on to you. But yeah, so I think that's why like she has to be like depicted as predatory or like bad because otherwise this this polyamorous queer way of living would not be acceptable that's why she's a rapist that's why she's a well Mm. like that's why she's pedophilic that's why she's kind of predatory and that's why she's a femme fatale who like disposes of them so carelessly i think that's more of like the um and if you notice like sarah goes back to like heterosexuality at the end so you could look at that as kind of like reinscribing her back I assumed that it was like, I don't know, queer through through and out. That's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean. Through and through? Through and through. Through and through, thank you. I thought it was queer through and through, and then it had like one of those tropes in which um, homosexuality is like shown as a perversion and aligned with pedophilia, and I was like, wait. Mm-hmm. Why do we have to do that every time? I don't know if you guys have seen Queen of the Dam, but I somehow felt like that movie was more queer than this one, and there was nothing. <laughs> I don't think there was an explicitly queer couple in this. But you can do Queen that. Dam, but I was like, I yeah. am... But, like, the Lestat in that film is chef's kiss, in my opinion. He's just, like, this very uh, androgynous rock god dude, and it just works. I was just not. I was there was a lot going on in this one that I was like, hell no. Creed's points are all about the ways that her character is like misog like misogynistic or written in a misogynistic way. She's not hitting the homophobia on the head, right? Like, and mm-hmm. I think that's also because I mean we're talking about all lesbians this week, so I'm sure we'll get into this. But there's like a very different way that like especially like by women get treated as like oh yeah everyone wants to have sex with women that's not gay you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think just everyone is gay is my retort my rebuttal <laughs> yeah the intro to this movie was a ride and i felt like oh yeah i, I was like what it was like the 80s synth pop and then and and then bowie is singing um bella what is it bella lugosi bella lugosi is dead Bella Lugosi is is the actor who played Dracula first, like the original Dracula. And that was a song that Bowie wrote for the movie, I'm pretty sure. What did you guys think of the the potential references to the AIDS epidemic? Because I thought like obviously it's quite yeah. a lot of reviews have picked up on the like the blood mixing anxiety, which was like very strong and her boyfriend's almost like angry that she mixed her it's like really weird like he's mostly angry about that i think more so than the potential infidelity that he's like thinking of when did this movie come out 1983 okay but i also felt like something that's not as pointed out that i was like noting is more so than the blood mixing the rapid aging of john for me was like Mm -hmm. very much mimicking the rapid physical deterioration that like people who suffered from aids underwent yeah he even had the bruises yeah the bruises the like spots like it was like really intense. So that was like that kind of imagery. I think was screaming more so than the blood, or maybe they're both in tandem with each other. But I was wondering, I was like, how could that possibly not be a deliberate also, like, reference? The, the forever death that she leaves them in, like as if, like kind of mimics the way that the government essentially just let people die because they didn't do anything and she did nothing to try to help her partner. Yeah, um, she was supposed to find a cure and she just slept with Sarah, the researcher. I drew your blood, and then you took mine. You're crazy. You belong to me. We belong to each other. Get me out of here. You'll be back. You'll be back. 
In Thelma, a young college student from a strict religious upbringing begins to experiment with drinking, smoking, and her sexuality, which seems to induce fits of vigorous, inexplicable seizures. As Thelma's feelings for her friend Anya grew more intense, the fits become more frequent, and alongside them come curious other supernatural phenomena. Thelma turns to the past for an explanation and discovers there may be more to these seizures than she originally believed. Who's this guy? Who's this guy? This is like one of the best openings to a film I've ever seen. So the, the opening is with the with the lights flickering? Yeah. The opening is with the father and the daughter going hunting and then the end is him turning the gun on her away from the deer and then you get the, the title of the film. That is fucking perfection, like one of the best because I was immediately hooked but it was also so, like, unexpected. I forgot about the intro while I was watching it. That would have informed a lot of the things <laughs> about the dad-daughter yeah. the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> the intro for that really threw me off and made me forget how everything else started. But I agree. I really like this movie, as obvious. I've been begging to do it for a while. <laughs> I think I also said in like our little intros when we first started the podcast and we did those little things, it was like, my favorite horror movie, my favorite mon film. I think mine was Thelma. I like how this movie, one, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Two, I think it plays with a lot of different like aspects of horror. Like uh, one of them being like the fear of like not being accepted, like religious extremism like powers that you can't control also like just this experience of like her falling in love for the first time and not knowing if that person loves her genuinely or if she's being able to control their feelings for her which I think is like a very young people emotion I'm saying this as though I'm old but I'm young too guys which I think adds like an element of interestingness to like a very what could be mundane coming of age I fell in love with the first time movie but it's like I fell in love for the first time and found out I had an insane superpower that I can make people do anything I want them to do and make any sort of reality appear I just realized as you were saying that that like because one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about was like what does consent mean in this film if we're spoiler alert ending um realizing that <laughs> Thelma has the ability to like attract people towards her if she feels that attraction herself um but what you're saying there I think resonates with like a common anxiety within like a lesbian community of like oh I don't want to be predatory how do I hit on someone without being predatory like you know like I think it's just like where you live in like a patriarchal society where so much of the way that other people express sexual attraction towards you has been predatory you don't want to mimic that and a lot of people, especially the ones I'm seeing on TikTok, are in fact mimicking the predatory um, male way of approaching people, typically male, cisgender male way of approaching people. Um, but yeah, I think that that kind of, that's actually quite interesting because I think that that really touches on a very common anxiety within a sort of lesbian community. Yeah, I, the spell or whatever power she has, I was unclear what the rules of it were because I was under the impression like oh her dad is just like so fucked up and traumatized from what happened before that he's decided what the rules of this power are 
And so I wasn't, I wasn't entirely convinced that like, oh, anybody she has feelings for is under her spell because that was not made clear in the grandmother's powers. So like, I think Thelma's might be stronger than her grandma's and like her grandma was able to control it more until she wasn't. And that's why she kind of just went insane and was in the home, like the little nursing home thing. That's because he's drugged her into like, yeah submission um but with hers it seems as though like it's her subconscious that's in control which he can't keep getting away with this (laughs) (laughs) her subconscious here is like anything that she subtly wants happens so she like when she wanted her dad dead and it was like say no more But also, like, that tension between her and her dad also feels very Freudian and, and the fact that, like, she's more nurturing with her mom, even though her mom is more intensely, like, hates, hates I don't her. want this child. Resents I her. hate you. But, like, her relationship with her father is a lot more tension-ridden. There's a lot of, like, him being like, are you still going to church? Are you talking to the preacher? Even though we see in the movie he takes more of the caretaker role on, even though he is scared of his child and his wife just pretty much completely shuts but everything does, out but does he love her is he caring for her or is he so Afraid. worried that if she if she doesn't like him that he's next oh no i think it's just that the parents are worried that that she's going to lose control when she goes off to university so they're calling her calling her making sure that this her powers are yeah no no, no. the controlling aspect i understand but she's always like oh no my she's always like my father's a really good person he's a really nice person like that is what she honestly believes about him and i'm like is he or is he like playing that part so that he doesn't get like zapped away because it seems like he wasn't like necessarily scared to go like um the wife pretty much is very like i don't want to talk to her i want nothing to do with her i don't don't want any sort of interaction i don't want her to think of me dream of me nothing but it seems like he's like less afraid of taking her off because obviously like if your parents calling you every 15 seconds when you're in college mean like did you go to church today (laughs) it's a risk that you would set someone off but he seems like he doesn't necessarily care as much about the risk as long as it's like he's making sure she doesn't lose control or like tap into her powers in the way that like falling in love makes you lose your inhibitions and tap into different parts of yourself religion but the religions aspect of this is also questionable um because her seizures also seem like they were gently linking it to some form of like possession yeah psychogenetic non-epileptic seizures were apparently an affliction that was once like applied to women who they labeled as like witches so it was kind of like oh okay because the director really talks about her being a witch like in very explicit terms yeah so i think it's kind of although like i think that we line. normally think of like witchcraft as like more precision spells I feel like she does like she um doesn't necessarily become a witch into the end of the movie when she knows what she's doing she's a witch in the way that carries a witch yeah you know the same it's like yeah. the traditional wish that we witch that we opened with in some ways, this feels like how I think witchcraft would operate. It would be like something that happens inexplicably around you, and you kind of don't really know, and you don't have much control. I can see that like being a, like a way it's woven, and then like yeah, 
Well, witchcraft does operate, Louisa. Well, we know that. <laughs> witchcraft does operate. Oh, I say if? <laughs> yeah, if it will. But, but I also think she's <laughs> she's psychic to a certain extent because her dreams and her visions and her hallucinations had so much symbolism in them. Like the snakes, it was giving even Lilith, like this sort of queer even Lilith relationship. Fun fact, the director said that that wasn't like necessarily anything to do with like religion. He was like, I just like snakes. He's like, I just, I just like snakes. I think that they're sounds pretty gay to me. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, um, if you, the girl who plays Anya, she's a singer in real life. It's OK Kaya. I don't know if you guys listen to her music, but that's that's the singer. She was fine. She rocked the hell oh out of that God, center she part. Was so pretty. I have to say, if I was um, Thelma in this movie and I was at a party with people from my college and I had a fantasy that was banging the girl that I liked and publicly masturbated, I would leave the town and never come back. <laughs> I didn't realize that she, that they had seen her masturbate until like, I don't think they saw, I don't think I they saw her masturbate. No, but they of, show a flashback, flashback of her touching herself on the couch. Yeah. And I was like, I that's horrific. Oh, I would simply pass away. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I would even. <laughs> Just I would absolutely transfer schools died. and change my name. I could not. I would never. I would never go back. I would never talk to Anya again. I... <laughs> it would just be yeah no couldn't now be. you understand why she expelled that girl from the universe yeah uh, yes <laughs> there were also angel numbers everywhere i don't know like i feel like that was like she, like she was always checking her phone and her phone had like a big ass clock um i think i saw like definitely 11 11 there was like a 222 somewhere i wish i had you know remembered what parts they were just like in the background kind of but sometimes she'd pick up her phone and it was just like 708 like it wasn't a big deal but like it, i don't know i picked up on that i noticed it so i thought she was like clairvoyant clear you know some kind of psychic as well the fact that it went through the maternal line like from the grandma reminded me of raw and with raw obviously like the sort of cannibalism is like a new version of like inherited sort of witchy powers obviously it's not but you know what I mean but here it's like a more traditional kind of inherited witchcraft and I didn't realize until the end like I think Ty you said like until she embraces it and you're like oh she's a witch she's like a full-on like manifesting her own power but that sort of like traditional way that it moves through the maternal line was really interesting because then it like read more as her as a woman like discovering her power and autonomy and like figuring out her sexuality like it like I guess it hit the nail on the head a little bit more like with that kind of like historical backing with it not just in terms of like it was the grandma but in in general of witchcraft there is a definite like in her power feminist reading of it because she literally kills her father despite us indeed pointing out that her mother was 10 times more hostile than her father was um so yeah i guess there is that kind of like breaking the patriarchal expectation of you kind of this was i'm not sure if this is a good for you film though because at the end i was like i guess good for you but also like is that girl there willingly i don't know that's what i mean i was like really conflicted because i was like i want it to be a good for you moment but i just don't think it is because you just imagined her kissing you and then she did and now i'm like (sighs) thing is though like about this i'm sure like i love manifestation and my crystals and stuff but someone is going to watch this and be like that that girl is a master manifester um but (laughs) but um 
she uh she despite her like having this power i think people usually like pray for the things that they want or manifest the things that they want but she very much wants to be rid of this um and just would like for like fate to i guess step in and do things without her necessarily attracting things to her she has that entire scene where she's like god please save me from these thoughts and it's sort of impl while it's heavily implied that she's talking about like the romantic thoughts about women it's also like the power to bring people to her or get people to do whatever they want because at that point it's miserable like you don't know who's there for you or what you're just bringing in um so I feel like that burden that she has when she's asking for God to save her from those thoughts is not specifically necessarily her feelings for Anya but it's like save me from not knowing if this Anya really loves me or if it's just me fucking around so, her head is she well she could never trust anything then no like yeah. she, right there's nothing in her life that she doesn't know that she manifests oh, but she not. could win the lottery she could win the lottery so easily yeah yeah you would never have to work i mean at the end i would argue that she's evil because she's pretty much decided well, if this is how it's going to go, I'm just going to get what I want. It's the same plot as like every love spell we've seen in every movie. It's the same as the craft legacy. Yeah. It's the same as Midsummer, where we're like, but does it count? But does it count if it's magic? I Maybe we need know. like a suspension of disbelief. As in like, I was rooting for them. I was still happy. I saw a lot of people talk about this relationship in Thelma and they really loved it because it was a happy ending. At the same time, like, is it happy for Anya? Because she's manipulated. Anya dumped her boyfriend solely because Thelma wanted to I was to just going to say, I was just going to say, I would believe if, if Anya had like approached her and she did approach her first, like whatever, in the library or in class or whatever. If she didn't have a boyfriend, then I would have believed it. Then I would have, there would have been this like point of like, um disbelief where I, I as the viewer can decide if it was real or not but the way she broke up with her boyfriend for no ass reason that's when I was like oh but also is that like is. problematic like turning a straight girl gay trope thinking of like another side to it, it was like if it feeds into like a common lesbian anxiety of like am I predatory then it's also feeding into a common lesbian thing of like I'm gonna turn a straight girl i have an obsession like why do you want to sleep with a straight I mean, girl but she she so much didn't want this to happen like her religion was such that she really did not want for this to be the case like until she was sat there in the theater like damn near nothing from having a hand on her thigh like <laughs> she did not want she was not pride proud so like that <laughs> makes me feel like her, her subconscious does manifest everything but it's also like full of contradictions like she is praying for this not to be the case yeah. so that makes me feel like it's not predatory but if her subconscious says you know go for it who knows yeah i guess also yeah i guess she does you're right because like she also gets rid of her and makes her disappear for a time period so uh, it was also the birds yes <laughs> <laughs> care to elaborate on that <laughs> the birds the birds the birds, <laughs> the birds. Yeah. i think they're symbolic of um her lack of freedom because birds oh, are like yes. this um they can fly away they have freedom but she doesn't have that option like she's very trapped inside of herself and her subconscious is winning over what she necessarily wants to be her reality like she didn't hate her baby brother but she also subconsciously wanted to be the only child and we saw how that ended oh. and so like her subconscious is bringing about all of this misery that won't allow her to be free and exist in the world 
who amongst us wouldn't have disappeared our sibling at one point, you know? I'm the youngest child. I would have been the disappeared one. Yeah, you would have been you would have been got. <laughs> Wait, that's so funny. I would be the disappeared one for sure. Wait, me too. <laughs> so it's very realistic that like because i think like the mother looks at her as like a demonic figure but i was like it's so common for like older siblings to not understand like why you're suddenly not because you go from being your parents whole world into having to share it which i get such a common thing like they start acting out it's yeah needing more attention so why does she turn to god i think because her family pretty much associated her powers as being demonic so they just were like pray away the powers but okay, okay, so I have like a logistical question. She was medicated as a child and when she had her like whatever mental breakdown and then she was medicated after the incident in college. But was she not medicated for all those years in between? It was just the power of God keeping her like... Yeah, it was like extreme discipline. Yeah, the extremeness of the Christianity that they had her following was like, she wasn't going to drink. She wasn't going to do drugs. She wasn't really going to have friends. All she was gonna yeah, do was go the no drinking thing low-key makes sense because then your subconscious would just run wild. Shitty powers. Shitty powers. I was going to say. <laughs> There's too many offhand things that I think. And... But like in a way, like it's it's just quite interesting because in a, a lot of like telekinesis, like you would think, oh, that's so cool. Like I would love to have this power. And this film alongside like, carry but contrasting it with something like stranger things is like you would hate to, they make it like quite evident that you would actually hate to have this power which i think is quite cool with carrie i'm not sure if i would hate it it was like it was more like her mom was crazy and her classmates sucked she learned how to control it though and in, in that case like thelma like well also you, learns, yeah, yeah you didn't hate your classmates then you wouldn't do what carrie did with her powers so it's not like the power that's necessarily vilified it's like her anger and revenge streak but this one i'm like i would not want this at first i was like i really i don't like xavier you said you didn't understand the rules i didn't understand quite what they entailed but now thinking about it especially like in the context of how like like extremist religious views play into the film they're quite christ-like her powers especially when she heals the mum at the end Mm. yeah she's a rival i think that's like part i think the reason why they set up that sort of religion undertone is to be like this power rivals God, and that's why, like, they're all afraid yeah, of it. Yeah, that's... You're right. <laughs> this, like, omnipotent kind of power is rivaling God. And that's interesting, because they're deeply religious because of that event that happened. Yeah. Um, that was the godlike power. It's actually very, very strange. I mean, I'm not going to be lying. Anytime people are deeply religious, it's something wrong. <laughs> From my experiences. <laughs> Something I mean, it's, it's super similar to how St. Maud starts, where there's yeah. this, like, unknown yeah. trauma. They have nice that, parallels, like, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, like, that initiates this thing or whatever. Hallucination. Um, is she hallucinating in Thelma? She is hallucinating slash dreaming. That's how I understood it. Sometimes her dreams become reality. Like, when she's yeah. a kid, she maybe dreams the baby's in the lake, and then the baby's in the lake. Talking right. about kids not dying on screen... Yeah. yeah that was rough visually amazing but like damn it was yeah. intense they didn't hold back they didn't hold back also i feel like that's we talked about like yeah kids dying but also dead babies even more taboo so like you're just getting yeah. taboo after taboo after taboo concerns about consent aside i actually really like the queer depiction in this film like in terms of their meat cute i felt it was very realistic i was like i've done 
I was like, I've done all of these things. I have, I literally, the, I hate libraries. The only reason I went there was to find a bay. And also, like, the idea of, like, I've, I have gone on social media and, like, tried to figure out if someone was queer and been dismayed at their boyfriend. The other part that's super accurate is immediately unloading their trauma on each other on the first <laughs> date. They had one glass of wine and they were like, here is my deepest, darkest yeah. fears. And it was like, True. I, like, literally, I wrote a note and this was also after I'd seen St. Maud. I'm like, no offense. But of the Alphabet Mafia, lesbians in particular are so intense. For what reason? For what reason? <laughs> Just chill out. I don't know. It's all, the stakes are always so high. Like, she, she came in there and she's like, oh, yeah, my dad, my, you know, I am super close with my dad, even though he, like, fucking incessantly calls me all the time and is super controlling. But I love him and he's super great. And then it's just Anya being like, damn, have never known a father. And I'm like, you have had half a glass of wine. I didn't actually realize that, like, she was making her like her until she, like, showed up at her house yeah. in the darkness. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah, was yeah. she always doing that? I don't know. I don't know. I can't I think I think initially, no, because they meet because she has the seizure, the first seizure. And then Anya finds her at the pool later and is like, oh, are you okay? Yeah. yeah but yeah. I think the first seizure is what initiates exactly. it. Like, everybody was asking if she was okay. Because she was constantly having seizures and yeah. everyone had to, like, hold her. And she fucking pissed herself in the classroom. Like, yeah. it makes sense that she, like, people would, See, like, check up on her. there were a lot of reasons her. why I would legitimately move away and never talk to anyone yeah. <laughs> A lot of things on this, in this movie. Yeah, too embarrassing yeah. to overcome. Her, her orientation week was not great. But, <laughs> like, for her to follow up and go to the pool to find her, that's that when I was cute. like, oh, the, but I think the first seizure is when it initiated yeah, the, yeah. like, specific fascination with her. Yeah. She did see her in the library. I actually agree with you, but I think it was from the jump. Yeah. It was That's a cute, ima- like, Im- imagined relationship that she forced, but it was cute. Like, that scene in the club where they're dancing to Agnes Opal, chef's kiss. <laughs> I feel like this is the common thread in lesbian. Like, even in Memento Mori, like, one was super controlling and over-codependent. It's just, like, a common thread thing now in like all these lesbian films yeah. it's not too distant from reality but it's also <laughs> in all teen stuff in general because they love those like relationships where it's like the only thing keeping this boy from going to juvie and fighting everybody oh is this girl <laughs> true i love um in recent media the psychokinesis repression as a metaphor for like queerness i think i don't know why that works as like such an excellent metaphor but it worked in thelma and it worked in i am not okay with this still so devastated that did not get a season two because it was so good um but yeah why does that work so well with queerness i don't even i mean i guess i know why because like the repression like there could be something powerful in it but yeah i don't know why but that imagery really aligns well Every kid wants their superpower, and then, like, when you turn something like being like so ashamed of your sexuality into a superpower, then I think that resonates with like especially young queer kids. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> you didn't expect that from me, did you? Is that tire? Wholesome <laughs> shit. <laughs> Is that tire? Exactly. Is that tire? <laughs> I felt so bad for, I was watching with my roommate who has epilepsy, so cannot be near the flashing lights. And so that whole long scene where they're like trying to like initiate the epilepsy, my poor roommate's like head down, like, is it over? It was never over. It was really it was hard to watch through the that whole thing. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It was very intense. 
It was almost body horror. I can't explain why. It was just yeah, quite, yeah, it yeah. was quite like sensory. Like I'm sure there was there's a better way to describe it, but yeah. And I think watch. the hunger did it with the score. It had these really high, like irritating, like decibels that were going that on. And then I felt the same. Yeah, and I felt the same way with the flashing lights and thumb. Like it, it like activated the same part of my frontal lobe or whatever that's like okay we're gay now i don't know <laughs> zeba i don't think you take much converting <laughs> i thought it was interesting that the grandmother died of cancer because they say that like they used to be this like widespread belief or it might still be a thing that like emotional repression was a cause of cancer like that was one thing that people thought caused it so it was interesting that like the theme here is like repression and then her grandma, who was like very heavily medicated, very repressed, died of cancer. Say could have looked on him, Thelma. Thelma, could have looked on him. In St. Maud, a young nurse begins following strict Christian principles after a traumatic incident forces her to abandon her hospital posting and move into private palliative care. In her new position, Maud becomes fixated on saving the soul of her patient, Amanda, a glamorous former dancer and choreographer whose lifestyle and atheist beliefs worries Maud. You should have some fun while you still can. I've got more important things on my mind. Oh yes, of course. Well, how could mere human frivolity possibly compete with the Heavenly Father's warm heart pulsing? Let's go. Let's go. I saw St. Maud with my sister and we we were watching this. She was like, where is this being filmed? Is this like Jersey Shore or Staten Island? And I it's said, so I, think true. It's, I think it's in Brighton. No, it's it's <laughs> it's filmed in Scarborough and it's based on Hastings. No, dude, I the other day described Brighton as the Jersey Shore of the UK. Like, <laughs> wow. But gay. But I think it's interesting that this and um, Thelma are both people who are coming to religion for, for, for out of trauma and later in life like Thelma's parents were not super religious I think until the incident and so like I think that's super different from well I guess she have you as ever a child, seen a preacher into it they're always every preacher you meet is always like I used to be in the world I used to be really <laughs> in the world <laughs> and then they find God it's never it's never like people who mildly were like oh, yeah I really like religion like this is cool I got a theology degree <laughs> it feels super different from Carrie who like intergenerationally was like you know super scared and super religious yeah i feel like that's why this the form that we see in these two movies is like almost linked to vi well it is linked to violence to be quite honest yeah almost because like uh <laughs> the guilt and the trauma that happened in both of these films uh causes them to like pretty much torture it's themselves. guilt it's guilt in both of them what's queer about that there's something queer about that about it's like, like guilt your... and shame yeah shame is so it's at the center of like figuring out you're not you exist within a queer space there's so much shame and guilt around that like and it takes so long to realize like that that is shame as much as i acknowledge mm. that religion has a lot to do with it i really want like a film a queer film that does not like attribute the shame and guilt to religion because i was like yeah. i think we need to explore how it happens in other ways as well i do appreciate that like 
uh, in St. Maude, she has, like, shame and guilt from several different things in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, she is not who she is portraying in order to get to heaven. I think that is part of what makes this so funny to me because, like, an essential part of Christianity, the way that I was raised, is that you have to be, like, authentically there. Not necessarily, like, doing everything to get to heaven with the intention to get to heaven. Like, on I don't know if you guys have saw The Good Place, but, like, the thing was, like, the point, you only got the good points that counted towards going to the good place if you did something altruistically good and not because you knew you were going to get points for it. Otherwise, it just deducted because you weren't doing it to be good. You were just doing it to get ahead. She was a faker in St. Maude. She was a faker, and then she would have, like, these relapses where she, like, gave in to doing everything she actually wanted to do and, like, go ride three dudes and suck a dick in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what she wanted to do, though? I thought that was, like, her having a breakdown and thinking, God has rejected me, so she was almost, like, spitefully being, like, well, I'll reject him and do things that I did before that he would have hated. I don't think she was doing it for, like, her pleasure. into rape as well. Oh, God, yeah. Like, I feel like she did those things because um, when she felt like, oh, I already am not going to go to heaven or something, she immediately did, like, the worst thing that she was drawn to do. Not that sex is a bad thing. Obviously, do what you want, guys. Do what you want, but... um, Like, say, for instance, like, you're on a diet and then you're at work and they have a party and eat a slice of cake and then you go home and say, well, I already messed up my diet today, so I'm just going to eat pizza <laughs> yeah, and, okay, I see and go get mean. some ice cream or something. Like, she just, like, threw it all on at once <laughs> and was like, I'm going to drive it home because I already messed up. And folks at that, like, club knew her from before, bar or wherever she was at. Like, I got the sense that her life before she was saved or whatever is, like, she used to do that kind of thing all the time and but like that's where I'm Louisa I see what you're saying like where does the religion come in because like her guilt comes from killing somebody or like accidentally killing somebody why then does she have guilt for every other like perceived sin she's also done all sins are supposed to be related weighted equally in the bible so I think in her mind she's like if I save a soul that changes out the one that I took accidentally and then if I don't commit any sins then and live like this completely holy life then it erases everything that I've ever done that was sinful because yeah I also get this the sense that she might have been a very different before because the guy made the implication that she used to do that every night Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's about control in the sense that like you know how people who I think in sort of a trauma reading of it being like she was very out of control in that situation. Um, so, like, she went... It's almost like some people find freedom in submitting to that. Like, you would think it's, like, rigorous control, but some people find freedom to that because it's like you're submitting to God's will. So I think it was almost about, like, she's going to undergo this incredible control to, like, sort of... Uh, under this sort of strict religion doctrine in a sense of, like, paradoxically regaining control over her life that she... Or, like, if it's in God's hands and she can feel less guilty, like, that kind of thing. Um, also, that scene was apparently, Rose Glass said in an interview for Vulture. Which scene? 
the scene where she, the traumatic incident in the hospital where she's giving CPR and she kills the man. Apparently that was based on an actual instance that Rose's Glass like nurse friend had told her. Um, so her friend was a nurse and she was given CPR on a guy who just had chest surgery and he like he went into cardiac arrest and she broke his really fragile. She broke his chest and like squished underneath and that's what happened. This film is very much exploring the PTSD that comes along with like nursing so casually, which is why I don't understand why Boris Johnson gave nurses in the UK just a 1% pay rise. I'm happy you got that in there somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Shitting on Boris, thank you. (laughs) Always. Especially after he almost died from COVID in the hospital. Mm, Interesting. Now that you've mentioned the PTSD element, like I feel like what, how I understood the film, like actually seemed a tad offensive, but the way that she hears God's voice and she hallucinates these demons around her and she like has this sort of crusade to save this woman's soul. I understood it very much as her religion was schizophrenia. It was, it seemed almost clinical to me the way that she was like declining into psychoses. Um, But now that, now that you've mentioned, yeah. And like some of that might be true, but now that you've mentioned the PTSD element, I think it's more leaning towards, PTSD and but that not, can like, cause that other like what you're talking about anyway so they're totally. not like disconnected it's quite linked but she wasn't exactly following a doctrine either like it seemed like she was making up what yes. the rules of this religion were because like God in her head was speaking like Welsh and I don't know if she was supposed to be Welsh or something it like was, that but I'm like that, I don't think she was talking to God <laughs> that's a story for a different day so apparently, like, first of all, that was actually the actress's voice pitched down and the actress, Morpheth Claire Clark, can actually speak. She's a Welsh actress, so she can speak Welsh. So they and um, and Rose Glass wanted her voice to be the voice of God because she wanted to. She's fueling the delusion it's like in her head. Yeah, she, yeah. she say Rose Glass was going more with the sort of what you're saying, Mila, the psychology aspect, the, the delusional aspect. Um, also, there, like what you're kind of indicating, Ty, like there are people who have interpreted it as like it's not necessarily the voice of God. It could be the voice of the devil who's corrupting her yeah. and like forcing her to do like these things the whole time. Some people have read the whole film like that. And we are in a mino at Covletiat Maur. Reaching we bother some ser my game and inigure beat on. Devowit, Plantendot. I don't, also, know, I don't think it is that. I mean, I think it's more delusion. I, I think, think it's pretty clear. I think an aspect of it is, like, when she, at the end, goes to that woman's house to harass her some more. <laughs> um, and then she imagines her as turning into the devil, and she's like, I should have known it was you all along. Mm. And she was like, he should be enough for you. Um, I think, in a way, it is definitely implying that um, somewhere along the lines she has definitely lost um, her mind. Yeah. Lost her mind (laughs) and lost the goal that she was trying to obtain, which I think she originally was like, she latched onto this extreme religion because she wanted forgiveness for something she did wrong. And um, somewhere along the lines, what it turned into was punishment, not just for her, but for other Mm -hmm. people, for things that she was interpreting they weren't doing that didn't fit this religion that she created. Mm. I think it goes into a lot of um, ego. Like it becomes about ego and and control Mm -hmm. in a way of like similar to Thelma, a playing God scenario. And they even have those 
William Blake, very uh, explicit William Blake reference, and it, he very much talks about like how he reject. He had like several texts like there is no natural religion or all religions are one, and he was very much like reject religion and go with like inner spirituality which he kind of called the poetic genius and he kind of equates god to like the bard of a poet it's like all about creation and inner like inner sort of uh, yeah inner creation so like the william blake references was quite clever because it showed like how someone's like yeah it can be like a lot of people say like oh you don't need to follow a natural religion or like the rules of religion you can do like based on your own sort of spirituality but then this completely corrupts that because it makes it about ego it's like well what happened if you thought like you could decide the rules if you took sort of Blake's idea of like spiritualism and then corrupted it and made it about your own will your own guilt your own power your own desire yeah I think why I preface like my connection between her religious conversion and mental illness was because I did feel like the film was making quite like a tentative link between belief and delusion and now like you say ego although Amanda is like explicitly atheist or at least like quite dismissive of organized religion as expressed by um, Maud the film to me did give off quite a like subtle or not like a quite an atheist vibe to it and that's why like the understanding of her religious experience being tied to mental illness to me felt like maybe offensive because it is suggesting like quite a negative and like damning view of religion Mm -hmm. to me like maybe in the context of you twisting it to your own gain and your own ego but like even beyond that it it didn't seem didn't seem pro-religion you know or like very neutral to it Mm -hmm. I think it is neutral the, the director had a really religious upbringing and she was like, I didn't even consciously want this to condemn religion. It's just that, like, I don't know, that that just was the kind of setting for it. This movie, um, and actually all the movies that we did on this episode, I think have a very, um, oh God, I don't want to say interesting, <laughs> have a very <laughs> fascinating <laughs> perception of, like, loneliness as uh, a means to unlocking the most unsavory parts of oneself like in the first film her loneliness is like making her turn into this very predatory form of a vampire Mm. that is luring people into forever death so that she doesn't have to be alone and then in Thelma she knows what her power is doing but she doesn't want to be alone and so she just kind of accepts it and in this movie Maude is so lonely that but she's lonely in the sense that she's trapped in like a chamber of her guilt and shame and i think that's why there's that entire scene where she starts seeing the lady as a devil because in her mind everyone needs a little help from Maud, <laughs> and she's God. she's the one who can who can save the soul and that is the hard work that she's just been tasked to do on this earth but in actuality i think as I said, I believe she is not communicating with who she thinks she's communicating with. I'm not going to say the devil per se, but I think she's definitely tapped into a, a, a very dark side of herself that she's listening to. This mm-hmm. subconscious, again, he can't keep getting away with this, but, but the subconscious that um, is maybe slightly enjoyed the fact that she killed this person. That is part of the guilt that she feels. And that is why she's continuing, continuing to do the same thing. And she's also inflicting pain upon herself. But yeah, I think the, the compelling 
portrayal of loneliness as a means to doing something, cruel things or unlocking dark parts of oneself is interesting as a theme that we see across these movies. Well, yeah, the loneliness point, I just had a real brain blast about that. Mm-hmm. All of them having to do with loneliness and that the experience of queerness must also sort of overlap with loneliness is really in contrast to like the the philosophy of queer community none of these people have friends they don't have community they don't know any other gay people besides the person that they're targeting and amanda does she has tons of friends who all come to her birthday party or whatever the thing was happening. And she has this, you know, like younger woman who she's seeing or sleeping with or dating or whatever the situation with. And that's why she's so content to die, right? Like she she is on her deathbed and she's and she's living her life to the fullest. All her people are around her, communities around her. They all support her so completely. And she's sort of at peace with it. And what... What Maud is seeing in her is like, you can't be happy. You must not be happy. I need to be the one to guide you to being at peace with the fact that you're dying. Honestly, I think she already was. And yeah. anything she says to Maud is like to fuck with her a little bit because she's, she's she, bored. you know, she's mm. bored. And also like, there's this fucking bitch with a stick up her ass in your house every <laughs> goddamn day and your days are numbered. She's sick of her. She doesn't want her around. Yeah. She's like, let me, let me play some games with her. I don't think Maud meant very much to Amanda because Amanda has queer community and yeah. she has people yeah. who accept her and she has reached this point of being at peace. So she's like, she's ready to go. But Amanda meant a lot to Maud. She yes. was very possessive. But Amanda meant her. a lot to Maud and she was jealous of Maud for having other women, for having friends, for having community you mean who supported of her. Amanda. Or yeah, jealous of Amanda for having all the things that she did not have, for having all the support that she did not have after her trauma. Like she has this one other person who's like, oh, are you still nursing? Who tries to check in on her, who tries to be that person for her. But she's already she's already in the thick of it. She already cannot see past her own hallucinations. But in all of these films, the only people who survive are the ones with community. So even way back in The Hunger, there are other vampires. And that's acknowledged in it, that there is this like community of like people. Underground community. Yeah, yeah, who feed off of youth. That's why she's fine in the end. The only people who end up dead or suffering or like forever alone are like those who never found queer community. I don't think that's on purpose, but it would be interesting to see a horror movie that's explicitly queer where the person isn't so abjectly lonely. Yeah. Or even has has friends, not even romantic connections. Like, where are your fucking friends, (laughs) dude? Yeah. I mean, in Maude's case, I can see why she wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> she did. She rejected them, though. Amanda actually makes the offhand comment to Maude. What was an offhand? It was very onhand. She was like, you must be the loneliest girl in the world. Yeah. And yeah. she's very offended when she says that to her. I feel like um, the director kind of also pushes that kind of lon- Maude is lonely interpretation over the Maude is gay interpretation um Mm. but i i don't know i don't know i'm gonna read you this quote because i kind of took issue with it but we could kind of just you're kind of convincing me more so zeba so there's this interview that rose glass did again for vulture and she says i'm gonna just read it out in full because i don't really know how to paraphrase it but 
the whole thing with Amanda being gay, I wanted to play with people's expectations. If you place a Christian character alongside a gay character, the audience says, oh, it's going to be a story about repressed desires. Her heart says no, but her body says yes sort of thing. But I've seen that story quite a lot before. I thought it'd be more interesting if the roots of Maud trying to save Amanda were not all based on her disapproval of her sexuality. It's much more ambiguous. There's an element of physical attraction, but for me, it's not about Maud repressing her sexuality. Sometimes women bonding with other women can take on almost a romantic tinge. I think part of her envies Amanda and wishes she could be a bit more like her in the sense of like with her freedom. I don't know, I was like a bit with that quote because I was like, okay, it's a little bit of a... Queer baity? Yeah, it's a little bit of a queer baity kind of memento mori thing where you make something very explicitly gay and then you say like, oh, it's not necessarily gay. And it's like, I think, to be fair, I think Rose Glass is acknowledging that of course there was a, a, a physical attraction, which is more than the other directors that we've talked about have done and I appreciate that. But at the same time, I kind of read this as very explicitly gay. I was like, of course, there's other yeah. elements to it. But I read it as like, no, she's jealous. The whole time, she's she's yeah. jealous of Amanda when she gets a new caretaker. She feels like she's been replaced. It's not just about trying to save her soul. If anything, that's kind of more of a crutch for, like, you know, her not having to confront her sexuality. I kind of read it in a very explicitly yeah. gay terms. But interestingly, interestingly enough, the director kind of, again, was kind of sewing, trying to widen it. Um and all the reviews I read also weren't really commenting on, they just kind of offhandedly mentioned that she was jealous. Like, they don't really talk about the queerness. It's kind of like Jennifer's body, mm. where it's like people so believe that, like, women have natural jealousy towards each other. And that's not true. There's always a level of attraction there. Like, I, like I, the second I knew that this was explicitly gay is when she was jealous of Amanda's lover whoever she was yeah her. i don't know if they were like exclusive or whatever i'm like see that's not something you would do if you weren't looking to be in that girl's place yeah. because then you're not just jealous of amanda you're also jealous of her girlfriend and that you are not her it's not just about freedom and repressed desires and i appreciate that it would have been trite to have a sort of repressed versus freedom like metaphor and i like the fact that the film does widen it by going more into Maud's background and whatever and her future and her religious whatever but at the same time i was kind of like i don't think you can make this as gay as you did and then say it's not just gay it is just gay and religion is yeah it's not just gay is feeding into religion it's religion's feeding into the gay here i don't think what she says necessarily makes sense no offense to her it is her piece of work she didn't <laughs> write it but um there's like an entire thing when Maud confronts Amanda's friend who's from my interpretation she was an escort that Amanda hires to sleep with her but when she confronts her and tells her like you can't come here it seems as though she's explicitly saying the fact that she is a woman having sex with another woman is what makes this detrimental to Maud saving Maud's soul so her saying that like she doesn't didn't she explicitly... explicitly say though that it doesn't matter if you were a man she's dying she shouldn't be doing x y and she z does but it didn't convince me it didn't convince it me. sound like she was lying yeah, yeah. overcompensating yeah it was exactly. weird like the, the interaction that they had seemed as though she was implying that because she doesn't like monitor the way that Maude interacts with men at her birthday party she's just like i can't believe this bitch came back to this party like, yeah <laughs> So it seems more like she does have somewhat of an issue with it, but it's not necessarily the issue is that she hates that Amanda's gay. It's, it seems like I agree with Zayba that she's angry that she's not in that girl's place, but she mm -hmm. doesn't know how to deal with it. We briefly saw in your notes, Louisa, the godgasms 
the director calls it godgasms herself. She um, <laughs> she she said that the reason for having godgasms was I, I actually quite liked this point. She was saying like a lot, of, not a lot of people would like connect with the feeling of like vigorous religious favor, like being overcome with the God's love. And she's like, well, how can I make it sort Come. of? Mila. In Greek mythology, didn't they often kind of imply um, that like very pious people or very favored people would be able to have sexual experiences with the gods? No, no, it's it's so true. Like in in all like the all the sort of saints texts are so much fun to read. The sort of female saints texts because they do or like Jesus's wives. They're so much fun. Like the medieval ones because they literally have blatantly sexual experiences. Like and it's like kind of kind of hot um anyway (laughs) (laughs) some good shit (laughs) i had a a lot of fun in my medieval uh literature (laughs) seminar uh (laughs) (laughs) but she was but rose glass was so it is like a a thing of like there have been like documented moments of like women having like orgasms and appreciation of god so but i think that rose glass says she did that so that you would be able to relate to maud because she's like well not everyone can relate to like overwhelming love like or love god's affection but they can relate to an orgasm (laughs) most likely so she did it as a sort of like way to access everyone in the audience which i think was actually really clever to focus on the body element of it but it was like the it was so like penetrative the way that she was describing like talking to God as in as like I know lots of religious people describe it as like Jesus comes he's in inside you. yeah, yeah he's inside you, which is a bit iffy. It's given Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street two vibes. <laughs> the way that she would inflict pain upon herself to, in order to like raise the way that she felt his voice, kind of like how Bella would put herself in dangerous situations to talk to Edward. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about the okay the scene where she puts the nails on her shoes or whatever she got that from a bdsm website did you know that? i was about what? to say i was about to say is that kink i don't i have no. actually heard of very religious people doing this but not nails in your shoes right no no no, yeah. no. not no. not the nail not the nails in the shoes specifically as a kink but i feel like she has like this masochistic yeah streak mm. where yes. like she she's like she's like punishing herself but also that is like to open herself up it's to god and god's the only person yeah. she seems to be having sex with like, or at least enjoying it yeah she deserves the pain that she she thinks she deserves the pain she's inflicting on herself but she also thinks she deserves the pain of like depriving herself of pleasure in the way that yeah. she naturally wants yeah yeah and she likes that no i'm just kidding this is a kink she does like it I hope she had a tetanus shot for those nails. <laughs> <laughs> that was horrific. Going off of the nail thing, that this was an excellent sort of body horror as well. Um, mm. The sort of self-flagellation, uh, the abjection with her vomit, her urine, her picking, her scab, and that wound. Um, but also kind of like uh, Suspiria 2, or the remake, I guess. <laughs> Um, the sort of parallel between dance and like demonic or Ooh. witchcraft or sort of possession. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I didn't actually notice it until I watched, uh, or I noticed like the body is a stage, and I thought that was quite interesting. But I didn't really catch on to it until I watched Lucas Blue on YouTube was doing a breakdown of this film, and he kind of talked about um, like how Amanda's kind of surrounded by imagery. Like one of the posters that like you only get a split second view of that Maud's going through has like K six 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 on it, and like she's kind of. 
Amanda's kind of associated with like thin and demonic possession. And I think also they're kind of going that route with like the body as well, body being connected and contorting dance association with like possession and all that. Um, yeah. Also like the way they make heterochromia look like terrifying in this film. Mm. Uh, like also apparently like she has those eye colors like this different eye colors the whole way through but like they just chose to like really play with light to really highlight it at certain times like there are times where she's most deranged um was quite scary so they i think this is a great body horror kind of film as well it was also very funny what um (laughs) anyway (laughs) mila's like i love this horror comedy by a24 (laughs) No, listen, let me let me defend myself here. Um, like, for example, uh, when she said, like, uh, the, she arrives and she's like, oh, what's she like to the other caretaker? She's like, she's right, a bit of a cunt. Like, it's fucking funny. <laughs> Maybe it's like the sort of slightly depressing English type of humour, and that's why I liked it. Babe, I also had an English upbringing, and I'm not saying I was ha-ha-haing, so okay, what's your excuse? but Louisa, you don't like comedy or joy or laughter, so <laughs> maybe you weren't <laughs> looking for it. Within, like, religious communities, that sort of shame around sexuality is obviously pivotal. Huge, but it's not the be-all and end-all. We need more queer films without it, because I think shame and guilt comes from society anyway. I think they do it so that they don't have to confront the idea of like maybe it's bad that we've structured people in like heterosexual monogamous relationships for the sake of capitalism like i think they deflect a lot of media deflects onto religion to like not have to confront that part of her shame and guilt comes from society in this film as well even though a lot of it does come from religion and this is a very religious film i would say even so more so than thelma which is less religious but also religious but in this one, because like her nursing license and there's consequences for her actions, <laughs> the extreme ways that she lashes out at people and people think she's a weirdo and no one really wants to eat lunch with her and guys only want to be seen with her in the back room or in her little dirty bedroom. <laughs> like, I dirty, think there is a, an element that she is <laughs> that she is a fringe of society and that there is uh, shame and like she is a pariah within the town that she lives in because of who she is. Um, so I do think there is like some societal shame in this film that we don't necessarily see with the other ones. Because, I mean, in The Hunger, she's glamorous. She's she's French. So. She is the moment. <laughs> she's, French. <laughs> she's French. She is the French cool girl style that everyone on Instagram freaks out over. And then, and Thelma is more like her parents, which is a different type of thing, I think, out than religion, because, like, your parents' perception of you is a different type of relationship than society's perception. But in this one, we don't really get a sense of anything about Maude's family or, or anything. She has, like, that one girl who she doesn't like, who the girl also doesn't really like her, but she's trying to be nice with to her for whatever reason. <laughs> and then she has everybody else in town who hates her and thinks she's a freak. So... I think this is the only one that kind of tinges on what is it like to actually be the, the as Amanda said, like the loneliest girl she ever met. <laughs> There's no one who wants to be around her at all. That's partially probably why she's so damn crazy. 
And then again, I'm, <laughs> I'm about to come back to the same little, um, he should be enough for you thing is she is not fulfilled by that religion at all. <laughs> That's why she is inventing different aspects because she is so lonely and she thought that she did not for- sound like a party to hang out with before either she though didn't. like it didn't sound like she had a whole lot of <laughs> she never really seemed that fun but i think religion to her turned into um not only forgiveness but like having a friend but then she realized that like god isn't enough for her as a friend and so she just keeps creating aspects of it like, oh, I meant to bring people in. Oh, I meant to do this thing. And oh, I, if I do this thing, then I can talk to God more and then I'll be able to have a friend again. <laughs> like, it's just such a, a spiral for her that um, I think is different than that. Yeah. Interesting that you say spiral. There's reoccurring imagery to a spiral throughout the film so oh the vortexes in the beard yes there's a lot of vortexes you have the beers which is something that i also got from lucas blue on youtube he points out um like and the storm's eye spiral and the fact that she burns it's very biblical so yeah it's very biblical because um apparently and this again from lucas blue um so when you burn yourself burnt the term burnt offering in hebrew um, can translate to like um, to cause to ascend so like you can look at a spiral going down or up and that's kind of like what she like this kind of or you could also look at it as like her inward spiral like her psychological spiral um, but also there's spiral imagery even from the get not just the beers um, they she constantly shows like sink straining um, oh I thought that was more like classic horror I thought so too, but then I think it's like reinforcing that imagery from the beginning. But okay, things like that, that's when I wasn't sure if it's all hallucination, if there's actually like some evil afoot. Like the beat, like (laughs) evil afoot. I love when you say that. The things that were externalized, things that were externalized, like the beer, I wasn't sure. I'm like, is that really happening or is she seeing things? Like something seemed to be. I think she's seeing it. I think she is the evil afoot. I actually think she is. I think this spiral. But wouldn't people see her if she was the real evil? They did. They watched her on that beach and they all said, girl, don't do it. (laughs) They don't see her as she imagines herself with angel wings. It snaps back to reality in that last frame. I love that. Because in her mind, she thinks that's what she is. Yeah. She thinks she's making this great ascent to heaven. But I mean, biblically, suicide is not the way that you ascend yeah um i truly think we're watching her decent no but she was marching herself i think that's the difference a spiral can go up or down right like that's the ambiguity when you're moderating yourself though you're dying for a cause yeah she's she, dying because she, she wants to it. release herself she wants to release herself of her subconscious guilt of not feeling like all the religious effort she made was enough for her. Mm. So she made up this entire elaborate plot of saving Amanda as being the final thing she needed to do. And she knew down where that was just not true. I don't think she did, though. I think that she was fully delusional and thought that she was doing the right stuff. I think she also just had queer repression and being like, I'm obsessed with saving her, so I don't have to confront. Yeah. Little evil gay girl. This should have been a, a film. I feel like this could have been a cult film. Oh, yeah. Like cult. Classic or cult? Yeah. Including no, like cult. Like, I think, I feel like she needed uh, a cult. She, she needed, needed a queer community. Yeah, I was going to say, she's a community. <laughs> what are uh, cults, but not queer communities? 
yeah i think this could have been a cult movie um maybe she can make a sequel rose if you're listening to this and you have this idea that comes to you i'm ten thousand percent going to reference this episode um (laughs) but uh follow up to where maybe some young nurse makes a similar mistake she finds out about maude and starts to follow maude as though she's a prophet and they create a whole little cult off of it all of the saints had like a cult following so that would be really cool sequel Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to be our next Witch of the Week. We also have a TikTok. Follow us at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. And subscribe to our Patreon. Brooms up, witches out.